This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes that which are, are incidental, are incidental or, additional or additional to the main topic. The main topic in the margin of a book. Balancing perfectly on the line that divides literary work from suspenseful drama, Soon Wiley's When We Fell Apart skillfully inhabits both genres. The story is told through alternating perspectives of two characters, Min, a young Korean-American man, and his Korean girlfriend, Yoo Jin. Min's search for answers about Yoo Jin's mysterious death becomes a search for belonging. I recently spoke with Soon Wiley about his debut novel, When We Fell Apart. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Can you give our listeners a summary of When We Fell Apart? Sure. So When We Fell Apart essentially follows the story of Min, who is a uh, biracial Korean-American guy who's graduated college and he's moved to Seoul. The book essentially begins with the mysterious death of his girlfriend. The police claim that it's suicide, but he finds that quite hard to believe. And so the book, his chapters, the chapters that are written from his perspective, follow kind of his search for the truth and the origins of kind of uh, her death. And Eugen's chapters, the chapters alternate in perspective. Eugen's chapters begin a number of years before this, actually in high school, before she's moved to Seoul, before she goes to university, before she meets men. And so her chapters are more of a kind of confession or revealing of her story. And so even though when we begin the book, she's dead, uh, we still get to hear from her through essentially the whole book. And I want to talk to you about those alternating perspectives because Eugene's chapters, they're narrated from first person point of view and men's is told in a third person perspective. And I read in an interview you gave to Writer's Digest that you actually found it easier to write from Eugene's point of view mm. and that, than it was to write from men's. So, you know, talk to me about writing from those perspectives, both, you know, the the first versus third, the female versus male, and, you know, maybe some challenges or depths that perspective shifts offered you in telling this story. Yeah, so the perspective was kind of such a, a large facet when I was just thinking about the craft elements of the book. And originally, this book was only written from Min's perspective, and his chapters in the early, early drafts were from first person. And when I finished the first draft of the book, Eugene actually didn't have her own chapters. Um, she didn't have a point of view. She was still Min's love interest. She was still very much integral to the book, but she did not have her own kind of point of view. And I finished a draft maybe, I don't know, one and a half, two years, and, and it was just Min's. It was written in first person, and it felt like it was missing something. And I was also a little bit aware that, you know, a book about a guy who kind of is figures out his life through the death of a girlfriend felt a little bit problematic if I didn't give her a voice. And so I basically started writing from her point of view and these chapters were entirely separate. So I put Min's chapters aside and I started Eugene's chapters. So essentially it was like starting a different book and first person made sense to me. I don't know if I can, you know, I knew that it would be, Min's chapters were also in first person at this time. So it felt normal to write from her perspective in the first person. 
And I also knew that because the book opened with her death, essentially, it was important to me to give her a voice so that even if we know that she's dead, that her voice is still present throughout the book. And I suspect those chapters were easier for me to write for two reasons. One, I suspect that because she was already this fully formed character from when I had written Min's sections, I'd been thinking about her a lot. And also there was something really liberating about this point of view, the female point of view, writing from the perspective, at least in the beginning of the book, of a young high school girl who is facing this academic crush, right, studying for her college exams, trying to kind of get into the best university. It was just a blast. And it was, those chapters were oddly enough, infinitely kind of easier to write than Min's. And I was complaining to a writer friend about it, just, you know, why were these min sections taking me so long? Meanwhile, these Eugene sections are like, you know, it's like very rarely does that happen as a writer where you think, wow, this is actually going pretty well. And he said something I thought that was pretty bright. You know, he just said like, well, you know, min is probably you're closer to him. Right. And you guys share some traits, some shared experience. Whereas Eugene, it's someone who's completely different from you. And in a lot of ways, that's almost easier to write about. And so her chapters were really kind of um, a joy to write. Not that men's weren't, but but hers were kind of, they had a real energy to them. And I suspect because they were also, in terms of craft, they're doing a few things differently. So I finished her chapters. And then I realized, I basically put them together. So I, I took the Eugene chapters, I took the Min chapters, and I, I basically tried to fit them in together so that they'd have these alternating chapters. Much to my disappointment, I then realized that I had to change Min's sections from first person to close third, which my agent at the time recommended that. And that was a really important edit because there were just certain things in terms of the kind of narrative tension and sense of mystery that is really hard, or I was having a difficult time pulling off in first person. So once I switched that to close third, it really kind of opened things up for me. And yeah, and that's how I kind of ended up with a book that's written in both third person and first person, which I know is is certainly not the norm. You just used the word mystery. And I suppose all books, you know, until you've read them, they are a mystery, right? But how would you describe this book? I mean, it's it's very literary, but there is a mystery to be solved by one of the characters. How do you describe it? I describe it poorly because I'm, <laughs> I'm not good. Um, I, you know, when I when I started writing it, I was very aware that I wanted to blend the genres. That I really wanted it to be both a mystery, but also a mystery with literary aspirations. And I knew that there was kind of a risk because usually when you try to do two things really well, you end up just doing both of them kind of okay. I also suspect this is why it took me so long to write the book. But some of my favorite writers, you know, I I'm, I really love the work of Haruki Murakami, the Japanese writer, um, and Kazuo Ishiguro, who's Japanese, but he's a British writer. And both of those writers, I think, do this wonderful job of writing work that is of literary merit, but there's always some mystery. And it could be really small. It doesn't have to be some giant, big, dramatic thing. 
or it could be, but I've always been kind of drawn to those types of writers that have some kernel of a character trying to find something out. And so that was something that was really important to me. I also, in my drafts, I tend to create characters that are really passive and really boring and they never end up doing anything. And I, and in order to combat that, I knew I had to give Min, I had to give him a problem and I had to give him something that he had to solve. Otherwise, he was just going to end up kind of doing nothing, which is like what all my characters were doing in my short stories, which weren't very <laughs> good. So it was almost forcing my hand also, you know, if I open the book with the kind of mysterious death of his girlfriend, I don't have much choice, right? As a writer, I kind of have to see where that goes. So all of the major characters in the novel, Min, Yujin, Sora, and Misaki, they're drawn to Seoul for different reasons. And I read that you yourself, after graduating college, jumped on an opportunity to teach English in Seoul, and that you were hoping to find a sense of belonging in Korea. Can you talk to me about Seoul, about its draw for you and your characters and, and how it's almost a character of sorts? Yeah. So I, I mean, I graduated in 09 from undergrad and that was during the Great Recession. No one could find a job. I had a lot of student debt. And I thought, well, I've never been to Korea. I've kind of always wanted to go even if I wanted to go to Korea to kind of get in touch with my Korean heritage to quote unquote, find myself. I don't think I was ready to kind of admit that. I don't think I was ready to admit that I wanted that as just as, a, as an individual. I think I probably told myself something along the lines of, you know, it's a good job opportunity and yes, you are Korean and it'll be fun and all those sorts of things. It wasn't until I got there and, you know, I've been living there for a while that I thought, you know, okay, so like maybe there are some other reasons why you decided to go to this place, right? That you maybe were a little bit unsure of. But Seoul for me had this incredible energy and draw to it that I think I hadn't ever, you know, I, I grew up fairly close to New York City and New York City is certainly a kind of a one of a kind city. But Seoul, I think the combination of high tech technology merging with kind of really old, I'm certainly no historian, but old architecture and also just a sense of like this civilization is so much older right than kind of American civilization that was really fascinating to me and for the characters I think I wanted soul to be this kind of like magnet that it drew all of these characters from kind of disparate paths to this place and kind of the thing that I came to realize after I finished the book and what I liked about it was that they're all there for different reasons Seoul, even though it's all the same city, it represents something different to all of them. So for Eugene, it represents this place of freedom, right, to escape her kind of suffocating parents. For Sora, it represents like a place where she's going to establish herself as a dancer and as an artist. And for Min, it represents this place where he hopes to kind of find himself and find a greater sense of belonging. So for me, it was interesting that this city that, you know, it's only one city and yet it means all of these different things to all of these different characters. That was something that I think I really didn't realize it was happening until I finished the book. And then I, you know, kind of went back and I thought, okay, well, that's, that's good. I'm glad that it turned out that way. 
You know, and I was struck when men asked Misaki, after they both decided to return home, him to America and, and she to Japan, if she'd found what she was looking for. And she told him, quote, sometimes it's enough just to get away for a bit. It doesn't always matter if you find something or not. Just the act of looking can change the way you see the world. Can you talk to me a little bit about that idea? Yeah. So I think, you know, especially for men, he he finds himself in Korea with this kind of vague hope that he's always felt like an outsider in, in America, whether he's in California or whether he's in New York, and he's never quite fit in. And I, and I think a lot of children of immigrants, you know, probably feel this way, no matter what generation you are, that there's a sense of, well, if I go back, right, to the homeland, to the mother country, like things are going to click. Some things that haven't made sense are going to make sense to me. And I think there's that optimistic hope of, you know, maybe, maybe my life will make sense now. Like maybe I won't be so lost. Maybe this thing is going to help me figure myself out. And I think invariably you're disappointed by that, right? That of course you probably have to figure yourself out. No place is going to help you figure yourself out completely. And I think certainly that's Min's experience, that while he does find some forms of acceptance, he also finds that he's actually, he's more American, right, in, in Seoul. He doesn't resemble anything close to a Korean, essentially, that actually probably in America, he perhaps feels more at home, I think, which comes as quite a shock. But I think the the sentiment that Masaki is sharing there, and it's one that I also kind of think that maybe, you know, maybe this is just the the optimist to me, but maybe it's not so much about returning to your roots and learning about all your history. And then somehow that's going to kind of, something's going to click and you're going to feel at peace and you're going to feel at home somewhere and you're going to feel complete. In fact, probably it's going to be the opposite. Things are going to be more messy and complicated, but that's okay, right? That the fact that you did look, the fact that you did search, that maybe that's actually what matters more, right, than, than the kind of the result, the conclusion of, of all your searching. Okay, I'm going to ask this next question. And after I do, if you feel like it's a spoiler, just tell me and we won't, <laughs> you don't have to answer it. But I want to touch on suicide a little bit because it contributes to, you know, one of the dominant plot points throughout the book. Can you talk to me about how you chose to reflect on suicide and how the world reacts to it? Because, you know, Eugene's alleged suicide would it be more of a result of untreated mental health because she was unable to mask what was really going on inside? Or is it an honor thing, a Korean honor thing? Yeah. Am I giving too much away about No, the no, world? no. I, I don't think okay. so at all, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, we're presented basically with the evidence that, yes, she has killed herself, right? And, and Min is adamant that this cannot be the case. And I think for me, so suicide is obviously a massive problem everywhere, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of attention is on it now since the pandemic, but specifically in Korea, it's a problem. And I think for me, I, I, don't, I don't think that I can give away the, the real answer here for why it happens and if it is in the case of Eugene, but I was really interested when I started the book, I was interested in how we cope with grief and specifically the unexpected death of those that are close to us by suicide and how that 
often causes us to doubt our own perceptions of reality, right? This happened well after I'd started writing the book, but the death of Anthony Bourdain for me was the perfect example of this, where you had millions of people who were completely shocked by this person's death, a person whose whole kind of ethos and image was about what? Celebrating life, living life, loving life, right? Enjoying yourself, being with friends. And it was like inexplicable to people that this person was actually unhappy. And, you know, I followed that story with great interest because I think for me, that's something that Min deals with as well, right? How can this person that I thought was happy, how can this person that I thought was content and had everything, this person was actually struggling with their own demons, right? And really suffering. And so that was really one of the impetuses to write the book was thinking about how when someone does take their life and we have a relationship with them, and again, I think it could be a deep, intimate relationship, but it could also be a minor relationship. And I think even when those relationships are minor, it can be just as kind of affecting. But how does that death then cause us to start doubting our ability to perceive the truth? And, it, and if that is true, that's scary to us, right? That kind of unravels a thread. Like, well, if I can't trust my perceptions, how do I know what's real? How do I know that the people that I see are happy? How do I know that what I see is the truth? So that was something that I was really interested in exploring when I was writing the book. Yeah, readers are going to be left um, considering how well they know the people around them and if we truly know them at all. Do you have a, an opinion about this? Can we, you know, how do we create strong relationships if there might a be a part where nobody opinion. sees? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I do feel like, like people are just unknowable. Like I, I, I think, um, I did have a few people specifically with the Bourdain. I mean, they just, they couldn't believe it. Right. And so then those same people would try to find, well, it was this, it was X, it was Y, you know, and, and our human need to find the answer for why someone would do this, I think is really interesting. But I, yeah, I do believe like there are simply, there are parts of the human soul that are unknowable, right? And, and I think also the, the social pressure, regardless of what culture you're in, to say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Nothing's wrong, right? No problem. That type of pressure, even when you are having a bad day, even when you are in the pits of, you know, depression or anxiety, that instant reaction to say, no, I'm good, everything's fine, I, I think is built into every kind of society and culture in, in a really kind of universal way. So you received your MFA from Wichita State University. Um, when were you here? And can you talk about your experience, what it was like, and, and why you chose Wichita State for your MFA? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to gain admittance to, to WSU. I was there from, I believe, 2011 to 2014, I think, if I'm doing my math right. And, you know, I was looking for MFA programs. I was, I was in New York at the time. I was bartending. <laughs> um, and I knew I wanted to go to, to an MFA program. I also knew that I had to find a gig that was fully funded. Well, I should put fully funded in quotes. Um, but you did get money for it. And that can, you know, the stipend was was incredibly generous at the time. But I knew I couldn't go into debt. So I couldn't go to somewhere. You know, I couldn't go to Columbia and I couldn't go to NYU. I, I needed somewhere that was going to give me financial support. And 
I knew of Margaret Dawes work who still teaches at the program. And I was also very enamored with Albert Goldbarth's poetry. So I knew of the program. It was a very story program. And um, I also was drawn to Kansas. I wanted to get away from New York. I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone. And, you know, very similar to Korea, I, I kind of enjoyed, I think I still do, but in, certainly in my younger days, I really enjoyed being a fish out of water. And I liked the idea of going to Kansas and kind of figuring my, my place there, figuring out my place there. And the program was amazing. I mean, to be in a program with, I think at the time, you know, our workshops were around 12, 13 people. And to be in those workshops with serious writers, you know, for those three years, I mean, that's a dream come true because out in the real world, no one really cares about writing fiction. But if you can go to graduate school and create this artificial atmosphere where the most important things that you're talking about are setting and which journals have come out and, you know, to immerse yourself in that type of environment for me was, was life-changing and, and certainly kind of the more nuts and bolts instruction was also really big for me. I mean, I, I didn't study a lot of creative writing in my undergraduate. So to get some of that instruction, things on points of view and setting, and that also really provided this really great foundation for me. So for me, I mean, I, I wouldn't be here without the program. And, you know, I think for a program, its size and its location, you know, I think it's been really successful and it's put out some amazing writers. This is your debut novel, but it's not really a new project for you because you mentioned that it took several years to complete. What's it like to work on one project throughout, you know, such a long time frame? It was frustrating at times, <laughs> I think. Um, I, I have a couple other friends who are writers and they've been successful in their own right. And so it's always tough to see your, well, it's tough to see your friends publishing books. Of course, you're happy for them. But then when you're looking at your own stuff and you're wondering like, well, what the heck is taking me so long? That took a lot of, uh, I don't know. I'm not patting myself on the back, but resolve. Like you have to be, you have to be okay with, with writing to your own beat. Um, and everyone writes differently. So at times it was frustrating, but it also, you know, I think once I crossed like the year five mark, I felt I was kind of at peace. Like, okay, this is just going to take as long as it needs to take. And I had the sense that everything I was doing, one of my former um, friends from my cohort at, at Wichita State, Scott Armstrong, who's also a great writer, God help him, I sent him so many drafts to read. But he said, look, every revision that you're doing, you're making the book better. And that's so simple, but I think there are revisions you can do that do make a, a book worse. But when he said that, that really made me feel like it's okay if this project is going to take me a long time. And I say a long time in quotes, right? I mean, I think most writers, if you said you can write a half decent book every 10 years, like most writers would take that, I think. It also gave the book... Um, I think the book is better for it. You know, I think the book is more layered and more textured and has more nuance because I've looked at it so many, so many darn times. Um, but it's also a little bit strange. I mean, I, I was reading, I, I had a reading last night and I read from the first chapter and I thought, my God, like, 
I was like a totally different person when I wrote like, you know, I, I wasn't married. I had just moved to a new city. I, you know, and so that's also weird. Cormac McCarthy, I'll never forget. He said that it took him 40 years to write Sutri, which is one of my favorite novels of his. And I just thought like 40 years, like how do you, how do you maintain a consistent narrative voice for 40 years, right? So that kind of speaks to like that magical trance that writers get into when you're writing that you inhabit this voice in your books that's essentially detached from time. So even though you're changing and you're becoming a different person and you're growing and evolving, hopefully for the better, that the book somehow stays static, which is weird to think about, but I think it's true. You know, since this started going to publication, did you start working on another project? I mean, have you been removed from this book for a little while and into another project? I guess I finished edits, like I was doing edits basically last July, June, July were like my last pass throughs. So I've had some time, I think leading up to publication, there's been a lot of essays and a lot of interviews about the book. So that's kind of pulled me back into that world a little bit. But I am working on a second book. It's actually set in Wichita in Kansas. And that's actually been really nice because I started to feel a little bit claustrophobic in my imagination because I had been living in my head and soul for the last seven years uh, with these characters. So um, they are enjoyable people, but it's been nice to, to kind of put them to bed and I can get them out of my head. And I'm, uh, now I'm in a completely different kind of geographic location in terms of my writing mindset. So that's been pretty uh, refreshing. In that same Writer's Digest interview I mentioned earlier, you said that you wanted to write the kind of story that you wanted to read. Do you feel like you accomplished that goal? I, th I think so. I, I mean, I think, I think there are parts probably in rougher drafts that I would enjoy a little bit more because they're pretty indulgent. Um, but I think the book is better for those edits for most readers. Um, but I kind of, you know, I like to think of the book as there are multiple versions of the book. There's the first draft of the book, there's the second and the third. And, you know, there's also the, the book that is for the public is a version of the book. And then I've also got my own version of the book in my head. And I do think at least in my hopes of creating a book that marries mystery and plot with literary aspirations, I do think um, I've at least met my personal goal for that. So yes. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? No, I don't think so. This has been amazing. Um, and, you know, I'd just love to give another shout out for, for Wichita State. I mean, the writers there were incredible. The visiting writers were incredible. The teachers were incredible. The faculty there put up with a lot of guff from us graduate students because when you're a graduate student you think you know everything and no one can teach you anything so i'm grateful that they were so patient with us and I, I really can't thank the program enough for everything they taught me and you'll be in wichita on thursday may 5th at 6 p.m for a reading at watermark books look forward to seeing you there soon wiley the book is when we fell apart thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me that was Soon Wiley, author of the book, When We Fell Apart, which was published by Dutton. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. 
Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our intern is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.